Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. So, good morning, everyone. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. And for your presenters today, we have myself, Jacob. And me, Zane. Hello. And guess before we start, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that we are broadcasting from stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded, and that FreeCR and Green Left Radio um, supports Aboriginal sovereignty and the fight back for land. Now, guess to... There's been quite a lot of um, news um, that, has, I guess, happened in a kind of the past week. One of the sort of interesting sort of things that we've kind of heard that has been reported um, by a number of... Um, that has been reported, I guess, in the past week, is being this kind of ramping up of rhetoric about war against China, which we're going to be interviewing David Bromfey, who is a senior lecturer um, in Chinese history at the University of Sydney, about this whole um, question around the hysteria around war against China. He recently wrote an opinion pay- a piece basically arguing that um, Australians don't want a war with China and we should raise our voices um, to oppose it. So that has been one of the kind of interesting kind of things um, to kind of note with Peter Dutton sort of making some comments in the past week, uh, kind of alluding to, you know, we have to take a, um, the government is going to have to take a kind of hardline stance against China. There was even an, a report um, of a leak of a senior kind of military kind of official meeting, um, which basically sort of implied that there's a sort of timeline that our current kind of military is working with in terms of a potential military conflict with China. And But then, um, I'm not sure if Zane saw this, but there was sort of a weird and re- um, interesting kind of story because I guess um, one of the kind of context political context for a potential war with China is kind of like this whole issue um, surrounding um, Taiwan. Mm. And then in a weird sort of turn of events, and this possibly indicates something about the, um, about the government, Morrison, Scott Morrison, in an interview, essentially was kind of asked a question about Taiwan and essentially reinforced China's current, current policy on Taiwan, which that... Um, they gradually support Taiwan becoming part of China in, with with some kind of complex, complicated kind of system. But basically, the Scott Morrison government essentially relayed what China's policy was on Taiwan and basically argued that was the government's policy, which was a bit eccentric and kind of indicates that maybe the government is potentially vacillating and, you know, there is a potential that, you know, the government is actually serious about its sort of rhetoric, especially in the context of the US-Australia alliance. But there's also a fact that 
the government is gearing up for a federal election and potentially trying to, you know, win votes around this whole question around being um, so they could not be seen as being too soft on China. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think uh, it's also the case that within the government there would be different views. Um, China, um, I'm, I'm quite sure China is Australia's largest trade partner. So within the ruling class and within its bourgeois representatives to parliament, there's got to be a bunch of people who are like, can we not, you know, stoke war threats with China? Like, we need to trade with this country. So there's there's going to be an element of the ruling class that prioritises trade with China, which is important to capitalist profit-making, and then there'll be another part of the ruling class that kind of prioritises um, using racism and, and red-baiting and yellow peril as this divide-and-conquer kind of tool and, uh, you know, beating the drums of war to to try and whip up nationalism. So, yeah, I think... Um, that contradiction between some of this sort of aggro beating the drums of war and then ScoMo saying, oh, yeah, no, we recognise Taiwan is kind of like part of China. I think that's probably represents that there's, yeah, some some different and contradictory views within the, within the Liberal Party and probably within the Labor Party as well. I definitely agree um, with you, Zane, and I guess we'll, have, we'll definitely have to discuss more of these kind of themes that we're talking about um, when we interview David Brophy, um later on, where we'll be talking in more detail about some of this. I guess the next kind of news story I kind of want to move on to, and, um, and this is just all part of some of the big developments that have happened, in, I guess, in the past week, has been... Um, we last week we did a bit we did an interview on the whole covid-19 crisis as it is currently unfolding in india which is going through its second wave and one of the responses of our federal, federal government one of the features of our country is that we have a large, there's a large number there was a lot there's a large number of australian citizens um who live in india and Essentially, in um, as a result of the crisis, a lot of uh, Australians have attempted to move back to um, to Australia, and the federal government's response has basically been to ban any travel um, from from India or ban any returning travellers from Australia from coming back to Australia, and they've even gone as far as threatening jail time for those who attempt to come um come back because basically there's there's a few sort of hidden ways you can sort of get um because of the because of the of flight routes etc yeah you can go to a third country and then get a flight from there so you're not coming direct from india mm. and um we we've um so green left has sort of published a statement by socialist alliance which basically argues that the federal government's um, decision to punish um, Australian city, um, citizens returning from India should be a warning to all those, to all that the ruling class does not care about ordinary people, neither in Australia nor India. Because the actual kind of reality that the kind of basis for this travel ban 
is a bit, I think, I think it is, it has been criticised by many experts and of course many people in the media as basically being uh, um, discriminatory and racist because really the actual thing is there, they, there has been actually higher rates of infections coming from, um, from the um, countries such as the US and the UK and of course not necessarily not necessarily high, but there's just been high amounts of COVID cases from those particular countries, including Brazil. And the government has never made has never made it sort of part of its policy to ban returning travellers from the um, from those countries. And I also think the the government's kind of snap decision to ban returning travellers from India also indicates, I think, something about the federal government's approach to um, hotel quarantine and that they almost are acknowledging that it is not working. And, of course, there is a a clear... um, The government is clearly preventing... um, is clearly not willing to take the serious kind of action that is kind of needed to actually fix um, the federal hotel quarantine system. And I think... And there's also the whole kind of issue around, and one of the kind of issues that um, the government kind of has also raised, um, um, that this uh, um, that this statement from Social Science has also raised, is this whole question of intellectual property rights over COVID-19 vaccines. And essentially, that is having a disproportionate impact you know, on India. For example, as we kind of like discussed last week, India actually produces um, a large amount of the vaccines, but mm. they actually have no access. They're simply just ex- exporting it to their countries. And how I've heard that the COVID-19 um, vaccine is being distributed in India is essentially hospitals and private hospitals are essentially just paying um, the vaccine um, producers to be able to produce vaccines. And, of course, the whole question around this intellectual property rights is actually preventing India from having the ability to be able to produce its own cheap vaccines and to be able to distribute um, to the community. And mm. essentially, Australia is being a party to that um, by, uh, um, by, with its hold, uh, with its support for in- intellectual property rights. Yeah, I've noticed in the bourgeois media in the last couple of days, there's been a real sort of um, offensive saying that, oh, yeah, it's just a feel-good gesture, this intellectual property stuff, but it actually won't help poor countries to um, make these vaccines and distribute them because we're not talking about Panadol. We're talking about mRNA vaccines, and they're really hard to produce and blah, blah, blah. And I think that's just garbage. Um, one of the interviews that I heard, someone was saying, oh, yeah, well, there's this company in Canada that's offered to make generic COVID vaccines, but it will take them nine months to get their factory ready to go to produce the stuff. Well, you know, all the more reason to get this intellectual property barrier out of the way so that it's nine months from May and not nine months from June or July or September, or it's not the year 2024 before people can start mass producing generic COVID vaccines. This is really urgent. Huge numbers of people are dying in India and it needs to happen. I I think there's a real, I think there's um, an opportunity for a sort of protest around this. I think it it could be something that that went viral that, that a lot of, I think, Popular opinion in a lot of places and and certainly in wealthier countries like Australia would be like, why the hell 
are profits getting in the way of letting people mass produce vaccines in the places that they really need it, and in particular in, in countries like India or Brazil? Yeah, well, one of the thing, one of the kind of scourges of this sort of intellectual kind of property rights is essentially what we have, we've managed to get into this kind of situation with the COVID-19 pandemic where for the COVID-19 um, vaccine to have been produced, essentially evolved governments around the world giving loads of handouts to pharmaceutical companies because the actual reality is when you look at um, the production of vaccines in the kind of neoliberal kind of capitalist context, like if you are capitalists and you want to um, create the most kind of profit off um, off a vaccine ultimately vaccines are not um, are not profitable because they are like a product um, that yeah, that has to be distributed widely most people kind of get it you can't afford to mark up the price of a vaccine although we are already seeing kind of attempts by um, by pharmaceutical companies to do that and in fact, they've basically been crying poor and arguing for, for subsidies to be given to them so they can actually distribute it to governments at a sheep price, at a sheep price per dose. And one, but yeah, the basic thing is because there's, um, intellectual property rights over this vaccine, it basically means that, um, other, um, other institutions and other organizations don't, uh, don't, are not, um, are not, don't have access to the patent to be able to produce um, particular vaccines without having to fork a large sum to the pharmaceutical companies. And I think it's just a real outrageous kind of thing about the pandemic mm. that has been kind of revealed about um, capitalism. And and it's sort of like it goes it goes contrary to what has been the best practice in terms of how um, vaccines have been produced in the past. Like one of the most kind of more significant things in history was the fact that the um, that the man who invented the polio vaccine, whose name I um, don't recall, um, actually argued against this idea of intellectual property rights. The idea that actually this vaccine I produced should be Produced for free and should be distributed to every single person um, as 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 soon as possible, and there shouldn't be no economic barriers to that being um, able to happen. Yeah, which flies in the face of this uh, neoliberal ideological talking point that unless people have the intellectual property rights uh, and the ability to make profit there'll be no motive to make uh, these vaccines. And so, well, <laughs> yes, there is, because some people who are scientists and doctors actually care about their fellow human beings and want to put their extensive knowledge at the service of humanity. Um, so, yeah, the polio example that you give is a good one. Yeah, and um, I don't necessarily kind of have time to kind of go into this, but as part of guess of this kind of discussion, I'd like to kind of point to listeners that there is um, a very interesting article, and probably one of the things that people have kind of noticed um, that um, that has kind of been in the media recently is um, Bill. Gates and Melinda Gates have um, ha um, divorced. Now, we're not really interested in that kind of personal sort of detail, but while we're sort of mentioning, while Bill Gates is being mentioned right now, there is quite a, a very good article that details Bill Gates's role in um, pin and pending global access to COVID vaccines because people know Bill Gates 
big billionaire from Microsoft has been one of the biggest pushers of intellectual property rights. And of course, through his institutional weight and influence in the kind of global kind of um, an economy because of, um, through the um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and so on, he essentially managed to set things up and have a lot of influence over a lot of the major decision makers that actually meant that the COVID-19 vaccine was developed in the context in, in mind with preserving intellectual property rights. Um, which I think is a very outrageous thing. And I think if you search into Google Bill Gates, um, um, Bill Gates' impending global access to COVID vaccines, um, New Republic. You'll find a link to the article, which goes into a very sort of long, it's a very good kind of piece of investigative journalism that I definitely just think is worth reading, especially in the context of everything we're kind of discussing here in terms of the COVID-19, the, um, the development of the COVID-19 vaccine and um, intellectual property rights. Hmm. So I will, I think we'll play, um, we'll go play a quick, um, announcement and we'll move on to the first, um, interview for our program. You are listening to Green Left, um, um, radio. This is Irene Bolger, former secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986, and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. VCR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to more than community radio. Please subscribe now. Just a moment, community radio araja al istrakal an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanali VCRi kertu kondi Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Netsukketsek Radio I Gairanin, Voretain Gudam Elbumi Hai Kaotin, Hima Artanakrevetsek Ipertrisiari Antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And on the line, we have Andres Vargas, um, who is based in Colombia and is a lecturer with, you know, at the Universidad of Central de Colombia. So good morning, Andres. Good morning, Andres. So I, I, well, obviously it's probably the afternoon in Colombia right now. And we've been hearing um, reports of, uh, there's been a lot of um, things happening in Colombia um, with kind of like massive kind of protests and um, many other kind of um, things kind of happening. There's been a massive protest against this tax reform bill that's been implemented by the Colombian government. And of course, that has been pushed by the Colombian government. And of course, um, has also been met with massive police repression of these protests. I guess, can you, what can you, can you tell me, um, 
in what is, I guess, the context in terms of the political situation that is happening in Colombia right now? Well, um, the political situation that we are experiencing back right now, we can we can trace it back to 2019 when we start to um, see this massive protest in the country. Um, in the in the in the in this moment, um, what happened is that uh, union uh, national unions call for a strike, general national strike, on the 28th of April, um, because of the tax reform. But the political like environment and atmosphere uh, is is not uh, entirely attached to the tax reform. That's like the point of juncture. But um, there's plenty of stuff happening. Um, Besides the tax reform, um, so as you you may know, we 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 we, we our country went to to the peace agreement in, in, in the peace agreement in 2016, and um, since then, I mean, there was like this kind of uh, ambience of hope within the country, ambience of that we were going to see change. In the country, and that was accompanied by, by, by like 15 years of um, improving living conditions for the people. So there was this kind of ambience that we were walking towards something better. There were there were of course many problems, but we we were experiencing that kind of hope. But um, unfortunately, um, when the new government uh, got elected, one of the goals of this government was. Um, in many senses, to um, dismantle the peace agreement. In many senses, they say that they, they they didn't aim to do that, but in the practice, that was that that is what what has been happening. So, just to give you a brief overview of, of what is happening, the um, G, the, the GEP, which is the 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 the, the transitional. Um, um, the transitional justice system that uh, we established to the peace agreement um, has made some uh, made some reports uh, recently where they say that 900 grassroots leaders, um, um, including some uh, of the uh, grassroots uh, um, combatants that signed the agreement, um, has been killed. 900 since 2016 up until 2021. 900. Uh, leaders. Um, just during this year, um, 27,000 people has been forced to displace, and this is all related to the fa- to the failure of the government to 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 implement the the, 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 the agreement. Uh, for example, um, there was this program of substitution of crops, um, where uh, farmers agreed to substitute uh, co- coca and other um, drug-related um, uh, crops with legal crops. But what happened is that the, the, the help never came. So they, 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 they agreed to do it. They cleaned their, their, their land from, from coca and other, and other illegal crops and never never received the, the expected uh, support from the government in terms of technical support, how to crop other things, and in terms of resources, the things that you need to, to grow legal, legal crops. So... This is this is this is what is what is going on. Also, um, the the ambience is very tense. Um, in many senses, this 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 is a hardline um, right wing government, and um, 
it, it's been like trying to deny what the advances that we made to, toward the peace. One of the things that is um, really, really put people on the edge is the report that uh, um, in the Uribe Vélez government that was uh, from 2002 to 2010, uh, 6,402 6, people were killed um, and made made pass by guerrilla uh, guerrilla combatants. So that's what we call the uh, positive, the false positive uh, phenomena, which is basically that uh, the, 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 they were killed and, 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 and to just inflate the numbers of the results of the army in its war against FARC and other guerrillas. So, yeah, people is really angry with all of this happening. Also, because honestly, Colombia in, in the past 20, 30 years has stopped to being a poor country. Um, the economy was in, in blossom in many senses, but this, 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 this blossom of the economy was dependent of, on extractivism and mainly mining and, 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 and affecting communities, uh, and affecting the environment heavily. So many communities were, um, displaced by the mining, um, projects. One of the most, uh, or the largest and, uh, is, is this, uh, Cerrejón. So, all of these things that the economy was depending on mining and, and, and the fact that mining affected grassroots communities started to like feed, feed up the people. The people started to like, oh, what is going on? And also this all has been accompanied by massive corruption scandals. As you may hear in Latin America, we have this uh, international corruption scandal that is called the uh, Obradesh, that they, the Obradesh Corporation, a Brazilian corporation, just um, uh, bribe um, authorities and, and politicians to get the contracts on, 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 on many of the countries around, around the, the region. But in Colombia also there's a lot, many, many, many small corruption scandals that affect the life of the people in levels um, that are really, I mean, that's 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 something that is hard to comprehend uh, from a moral point of view. For example, the national policy on on, on give um, the national policy to to to, to nutrition uh, that consists of uh, in public schools they give uh, children uh, they give them some uh, lunch and they give them some foods. But what happened there is that. Um, in many places around the country, uh, they, 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 they rob this money. They rob this money for, for, for feeding the, the, the children and they give them, um, unsuitable food, like rotten food even. So this is, this, this started to like, people started to get angry. People started to get angry. Um, and, and nothing happened, you know, people, people nothing happened, um, in, in, in the terms of, we know all of this. This is happening, but um, it seems that uh, uh, legal institutions uh, in charge of, of prosecuting these these crimes—I don't know—nothing happened. So people are starting to get this this sense that what is going on? Nothing is happening. You know, uh, people are starting to to get fed up. So this is kind of the ambience 
behind what it, what is what, it, what with the protest. So when the when the tax reform came, we already were like on the edge. I wanted to kind of go, I guess, a, a bit more kind of detail. You're going into guess the kind of tax reform, and I think you've given kind of like a very good overview. I think of all the different, like a very kind of good overview of kind of all the different sort of factors and the kind of elements. And I guess one of the things I've been kind of reading in the media has been that a lot of the kind of protests have been. Um, have been in response to this proposed tax reform. And I guess, can you tell us, I guess, in more detail about the tax reform? And I guess I want to kind of hear what was sort of the rationale given by the ruling government because this tax reform has been, I guess, part of their response or justified response to the COVID-19 pandemic as it has impacted on Colombia. What happened here with the, with the, or what what the government is saying is this is not a tax reform. They say they say that this is kind of the law for sustainable um, for sustainable social programs. Um, and what happened is that in two thousand in two thousand nineteen they they give this. Um, yep, in two, in two thousand nineteen they 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 did this tax reform that. Um, Give uh, big corporations and big companies uh, a lot of um, tax benefits. So, in in, in terms, they, they, the the government lose about 12,000 uh, 12, billion pesos uh, in, in 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 revenue in, from taxes. So now, what happened is that they 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 decided need to recover that money. Especially because after the pandemic, the, 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 as many countries, the economy was heavily hit by the pandemic, and they they decide that they need to collect 25 billion pesos. Uh, one of the ways that they were attempting to do it is that is increasing tax on on on, on basic um, um, basic necessities uh, like public services. Uh, water, electricity was going to be taxed uh, at least for. Um, the middle classes, and also um, they wanted to to put some tax on food. That, um, of course, angry people, angry people. How, how you are going to put a tax on, on food in a country that, um, as as now, uh, we have more than 21 million people living in poverty. Um, so how are you going to tax to, to put a, a tax on food? Also a tax on fuel, which of course increase, increase the, the 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 price of everything in the country, everything. So so people just just say, oh, this this cannot happen. Like all of this is happening, but this is like the tippy the, the, the tippy top. We we cannot stand that anymore. Um, so this is this is what is going to happen. This is this is this is we are not we are going to 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 deny this 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 tax reform that is going to tax our food that is going to tax our fuel, and 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 that is that that put the burden of 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 um, recovering the money lost during the pandemic on the the everyday people instead of the of the of the of the companies, which is. Is is funny now because even even the the the, the representatives from com- from the company from the enterprises sector in the, in, in, in the country, they say this tax reform is not good because it, it is going it is going to impact 
how people are going to consume. So we propose that you increase the, the, the taxes on, on companies. This is, this, is, this is something very funny because they say we propose you increase the, the taxes on, on, on companies and we take the burden, at least for now, because people cannot take the burden. Um, I mean, in this country, um, about 21 million, again, people uh, pass from having three meals a day to having just two, and many of them, about five million, if I'm right, um, uh, only one meal a day. So that's 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 why people are really really angry about. Like, but as, as I say, this this is connect to a, like um, ambience of general like discontent with uh, with the government. So that's a, that's a kind of, I think a very good sort of overview of I think of the tax reform and I think you know the impacts of it definitely would have been felt um, by disproportionately by working people in in Colombia and I guess what can you tell us I guess about this protest movement that has massive protest movement that has developed in response um, there was reports recently in the past several weeks of a general strike and I guess additionally beyond. Opposing um, the tax reforms, what can you tell us, I guess, about some of the different sort of demands and and some of the kind of different issues that the movement is ad- advocating for in in and the kind of different sort of issue, um, struggles that are that are becoming um, different sort of social forces that are also getting involved in this protest movement. This this is this is honestly a very complex question to answer in the context that is happening right now. Um, the reason I say this is because uh, the protest, around 70%, according to the Texco, around 70% of the, of, the, of the population are supporting the protest, um, not necessarily being involved in the protest, but at least supporting the protest in, in one way or another. So uh, there is this confluence of different political forces, of different um, communities and, and, and different um, kind of groups that are joining together without um, this is this is a very loose um, organization there is no like a visible leader that you can say this is the leader of the protest or whatever now it's, it's many people and, and the, it's the grassroots at the grassroots level people are organizing to, to mobilize without like visible leaders what I mean is that they say, okay, this, this is going to happen. Tax, tax, uh, the, the unions call, the, the national unions call this protest against the tax reform. And immediately many grassroots organizations and even emerging grassroots, uh, like ad hoc organizations that people just say, okay, this is going to happen. We're going to go to the streets and we're going to take the streets and we're going to say to the government that we disagree mainly with with the way that the country is 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 is, is going, uh, the way that the country is managed, and the and, and the nation idea that you are proposing, so this is, in many senses, what it, what is happening is. Yep. Oh, sorry, um, sorry about that. Oh, sorry about that. I think there's a problem. Um, there's been it. You should just keep continuing. Sorry. Yeah. So. Um, one of the slogans that has emerged uh, in these protests is when a government is, most, is more dangerous than a pandemic, you need to mobilize. So we were like on, 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 on starting the third wave of the pandemic here in Colombia. 
And people say, you know, it doesn't matter. People are taking the risk. Like, I'm, I'm willing to take the risk to get COVID, but we need, we need to, to, to go to the streets. And, and, and I honestly don't know because it's, 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 it's really like a general expression of discontent with all the political ambience. That, that is what is happening. And that is why it's so hard for, for the government to, to also open kind of negotiations or like trying to understand what is, what is going on because it's this general ambience of discontent. So people are saying, you know, we, we are, we, we disagree with you. It's basically we disagree with you and we are making you know that we disagree with you. Um, so this is like my, my feeling, my feeling and my, my, my opinion in many senses is that this is not solely about the tax reform, but it's, it's about an idea of a nation. So whereas the, there, there is this proposal of a nation that is unitary, that is, that is, that, that is uh, universal and that everyone behaves and talks and thinks in, in a single manner, what people are saying on the streets is, you know, you know what, this is a plural country with, uh, a pluriverse of, of, of ways of thinking who we are, and you are not giving voices to this uh, wide variety of worldviews. And this is what we are on the streets to reclaim a different idea of nation. This is this is my sense of what is going on, and 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 this is why it's so hard to say like this is this is the leaders, this is this is the demands. And this is the groups, and I and I and I, and I reckon that there's from the state institutions, not necessarily from the government, from but from the state institution is is this failure to recognize that this this is not solely about the, the, the tax reform, but this is this is this is this is about the idea of nation that we want for ourselves. That's that's my feeling. Um, Andres, can I just ask about the political uh, context with uh, Venezuela right next door? On the one hand, the Venezuelan economy is in a terrible condition. Arguably, this is because the U.S. is waging economic warfare. But certainly over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of combatancy by the Venezuelan people, uh, a, a big push to to try and build uh, socialism and to try and fight corporate power there. It's been a very difficult struggle. And then in other parts of Latin America, we've had the pink tide. Can you comment on how that sort of... uh, How do the Colombian people look next door to Venezuela and elsewhere across Latin America? And how does that influence um, people's, I guess, determinedness to fight in, in Colombia? I, or do, I mean, or do the, people not necessarily connect with that? Because I've heard this is potentially, um, I don't know. I, I believe that the uprising is not connected okay. to what is going on in Venezuela. Not at all. I mean, this this is this is more connected to like a global sense of discontent with a neoliberalism project and the way it had to build a state in nationhood uh, more than with the Venezuela um, crisis. 
the Venezuela crisis, of course, has uh, impacted hard this country uh, because we have received um, more than one million refugees, which they are in the most um, dire and, 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 and really horror, the horror of the situation cannot be overstated. Um, how Venezuela relates to this is mainly because it is the scapegoat of, of many of the, of the socio, societal and, and, and economic and political problems we have. So mainly what is going on is, is that the right wing uh, forces always say, oh, you know what, the people on the street want us to become Venezuela, and Venezuela, you know, like the scapegoat, if you, if you, if you think like that is because you want to be like Venezuela, and Venezuela, and Venezuela, and Venezuela, and, and even they, 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 they say that this is orchestrated, somehow organized by Maduro and, and, and Venezuela government, and I, I honestly think that that's far, far, far away from reality. This is, this is a social explosion of what is going on here in Colombia. Nothing, nothing is related to Venezuela. Nothing, nothing is related to Venezuela. Although the people that want to attach this to Venezuela is, is, is mainly right wing, um, ideology is the one that are attaching this to, to Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's, I think, a kind of interesting kind of response. Would you kind of argue that, um, this movement has a bit more, like this kind of um, movement that is kind of rising up in Colombia has, I guess, a bit more in common with, I guess, more the political, con- like more the current, I guess, the current situation in Chile, for example, which is, um, at the cusp of a massive kind of protest movement that's not necessarily, um, linked to, um, to some of the kind of pink tide sort of governments, especially because in the context of Chile, um, a lot of the protest movements, um, the protest movement has no trust in any of the traditional kind of, um, political parties. Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 um, that's more like it. Like, um, there has been this, uh, because the, the protests started in two, 2019, as I, as I mentioned, but they were like shut down by the COVID pandemic. Um, but they are re-emerging now. So what happened in 2018 is that this kind of like solidarity, international solidarity with uh, people in Chile. And people in Chile were fighting against um, a constitution that was um, created and declared um, under Pinochet <laughs> regime. So what they were saying is like, you know what? We want democracy and we want democracy now. We don't, we don't, we don't want this, this, this Pinochet made constitution. So, um, it's again about the idea of a nation that, that what happened in, 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 in Chile is more connected to what happened in Colombia. Also, and really important here is the connection to Black Life, Black Lives Matter, uh, movement in, 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 in the West. Because um, Black Lives Matter denounced this uh, heavy uh, repression from police forces. Um, and as soon as this started to happen, for example, in the U.S., people here in Colombia say, oh, but is that police also is, is, is enacts brutality here in Colombia. So we have to mobilize against this, this, this police brutality. So... Uh, I, I get this, this, this sense that, generally speaking, what is, what is going on is that the West as a civilization is, is, is actually on the verge of collapse. 
And this is what is fueling all of this kind of protest, especially in the global south, when we when when after so many years of colonization, we say, you know what, this is this is not what we want to be. We we want a different idea of nationhood. And the the thing is that there, there's no clear, there's no clarity on what what they what, what the people want or what we want. There's no clarity. But what what is clear is that we don't want <laughs> what is now the the. the that we don't want this, and, and we don't know where we are going. We don't know really what we want, but we know that we don't want this. That's that's the general sense of what I feel that is happening. Hmm. And I guess going into the, I just want to go into I guess the next kind of question, and this is going a bit kind of backwards, I guess. But I kind of want to hear, I guess, a bit more in detail. What is the extent of the level of kind of repression of the protests that is currently being kind of carried out by the ruling government, especially since it would be definitely interesting to note, especially in the context of what you kind of refer to in terms of this comparison to the Black Lives Matter movement. Okay, yeah, there's um, the report, the, the late, the, the late report from Temblores NGO, uh, which is an NGO that has been like collecting. Um, uh, since a few years um, has been collecting the, the police brutality um, acts they collect and they they issue these statistics and um, the last report that was issued that yesterday I don't know the report for today uh, they released the report sometime around 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. Uh, but now it's, it's like uh, 4 uh, 446 p.m. So we don't have the report for today. But as yesterday, as yesterday, the report, uh, 1,708 case of police violence. These these cases are uh, 202 victims of physical violence, 37 homicides, 831 arbitrary or irregular detentions, like people that are detained without the proper procedure, how how do you, you arrest someone? Um, 22 eye aggressions, and this this eye aggressions is 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 again something very related to to Chile because this was kind of like a, an, um, a practice that emerged in, in in Chile protests where um, the police shoot uh, these um, gum bullets uh, to to protesters, and they started to shoot directly to the eyes. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. How on earth do you, do you, do you get to, to that? So we have two, 22 of these, uh, and we have 110 cases where the police has shoot, openly shoot, um, with, with guns to, to the civil population that are um, on the protest, on the manifestations, and on the rallies. Also, 10, there, there's 10 victims of sexual violence report by Temblores NGO. Um, so also Defensoria del Pueblo, like the People Defensors, which is an state institution in charge of defending human rights in the country, has reported 89 disappearances. These are people that just disappeared during the, during the protests. All of these reports is since the 28th of April. So 88 people has disappeared uh, in the protest. Uh, and I mean, well, at least from my, my, my personal uh, standpoint, this uh, disappearance is one of the worst kind of crimes that you can commit against someone because um, we, it, it is very common. It has been a common practice in Latin America, common practice of repression, that uh, when somebody is dissenting with, uh, with authoritarian government states, 
they make them disappear, and this affects heavily communities, families, and so on. Because one thing is knowing that your kid, your parent, your spouse, uh, your friend is has, has been killed. Another thing is it just disappeared, and you don't know nothing about him or her or what happened to them. So this is this is the 89 of those, and this is personally this really pain me it's, it's a, I, I, I found this horrific like in, in, in not in the good sense of the word but like horror this is horror when somebody is, is disappeared so 89 cases of that on top of that on top of that the response of the government was to issue um, the militarization of the cities they call this like the something like the military assistance uh, for the police something like that but Basically, you are seeing the military parades on the street with all the guns and with all the, the um, I don't know much about guns, <laughs> and I hope never have to know something about guns, but you see these kind of tanks on the streets, um, these, 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 these trucks of the, of, of the army on the streets. So the country is, is, is the military are on the streets. And yeah, this is really a scare. You walk on the street, um, the Saturday was coming back from one of these protests and uh, when I saw the military, I really got scared, really, really feel the scare. And um, there's no, there's uh, still, there's no like um, uh, records of, of the army um, acting, but it's a scare tactic in many senses. Um, of course, there's also violence uh, um, in the hands of the protesters. A police station was born with uh, with, with some policemen in, inside. Uh, Eleven policemen were, were were inside when they born the station. Among this is one of the highlights. Um, but I mean, it, 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 the, the 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 thing is that you you have this social situation erupting, and and and, and you feel, you, feel, you you only put few to this when you when you um act in, in this kind of violent way mm, in the places of the this is this is all across the country so in, in the places where, where the police has um like restrained to act violently protests go peacefully so this is this is this is what is going on um yeah and I, so I just want um because um, we've we've got to wrap it up kind of now unfortunately yeah. Andres but you've given a kind of like a very sort of good lots of kind of detail on I guess everything that is happening in in Colombia right now and I guess do you have I guess any kind of final kind of comments to kind of sum up um the discussion that we've been having which I think has been very valuable and insightful in terms of what's happening and also do you know a good uh, website or somewhere where we can follow uh, Colombian politics. A website to recommend you. Um, well, let me. I'm going first with your question, like a final comment. Like, as I say, what is happening in Colombia right now is, is about the idea of nation that we are building. Um, people want a plural nation, in many senses, a nation that where many voices can be heard, and 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 they want. Um, a new idea of, of a country. That's what is what is happening, and this is, this is what, what people is fighting for. There's no like a goal, or we want this explicitly, but just this general like kind of idea. Um, the protest, I guess, that by today 
um, is the eighth day. So this is reaching a point of exhaustion in, in, in the protest movement as well. People are tired to, to be in the streets, which is understandable. Um, and also, um, uh, food is starting, is, is starting to, to get scarce in, in, in the main cities because the roads are blocked. And so it's, it's reaching a point of, of exhaustion, which, which doesn't mean that it's going to stop. I think that what is going to happen is that it's going to, 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 to like be paused, like people is going to, to, to withdraw, take some rest. And then this year, I, I guess that this year is going to be like this, like, and they again protest, and they, 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 they go to rest, and then again protest, all the way to, to 2022 when we have elections. So uh, I don't know if, if through elections this is going to change. Um, I don't know, but this is, this is my, my kind of feeling is that we are – on the road to elections, this is going to be like this, like waves protest after wave of protest after wave of protest. Um, and, and people are really, I mean, people lost the fear that they used to have um, in a country that has been characterized by, 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 by state violence. So people kind of lost uh, the fear. And even with all the police brutality, people are going to continue to move. And, and, yeah, that's that's what it, what what I, how I see what is going to happen with the with the rest of the year. Uh, in regards to a website, in regards to a website that you can follow, perhaps you Temblores NGO is is trying to to is in Spanish, but Temblores NGO is is following uh, closely what is going on uh, in regards to police brutality. Pacifista, Pacifista is 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 an independent. Um, uh, news portal. They are also following this 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 um, closely, but all of these are in Spanish. And and also, I don't know, Twitter. Twitter has become like the 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 the, the way to get knowledge about what is going on in, in the protest, because people, Twitter and Instagram, because young people are going to the protest and just record everything live. What is going on here? Live, live, live. Every uh, the videos are. <laughs> I, some of the videos are really wonderful, like people, because most of the protest is this massive, massive demonstrations of people um, drumming and, and dancing and singing on the, on the street, like, mm. you know, very, like a party on the street. And this is wonderful and this is fantastic when, when, you, when you start to see that um, evening comes and night comes, you start to see the videos start to report uh, police brutality. So how this is, this is kind of the trend. And Twitter is, is, is kind of like the place to go in many senses. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Andres. Um, yeah, we really appreciate um, you giving a very, a, gr- a really great sort of interview and dis- um, and having a, a discussion with us on what's happening in Colombia, especially since we're actually getting a perspective from someone who is actually there, living in the country. Um, we don't always get that kind of opportunity to have those kind of discussions on our program. Um, so yeah, thank you very much, Andres. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for. Um inviting me and, and to listen to what is going on in the country. Um, up until recently, international press wasn't, wasn't reporting, but now we are starting to see that the international press is, is focusing on what is going on here. Uh, thank you. All right. Thanks again, Andres. Okay. Okay. 
you're um you're just listening to um and we we're just listening to a discussion with Andreas Lagas, who is a professor based in Colombia with the University of um, Colombia, and um, he was just giving a bit of a, I guess, a, a, a detailed kind of overview of the massive kind of protest movement that is um, happening in um, right now. So I'll just go play um, a quick announcement. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM and it is just about to hit, it is close to hitting 8am where we'll be doing the Green Left Actors Calendar. You're listening to Green Left Radio. I want to When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote on to fly on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to FNB Melb dot no blogs dot org food not bombs is a 3cr supporter food 3cr programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream today we'll be looking at the legacy of the u.s war on vietnam on laos and as far as corporate capitalism is concerned it is the worst political and economic system that you can have our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and it's about to hit um, 8 a.m., so we might as well start with giving you an update on all the different sort of activist events and protests that are coming up in the coming weeks with the Green Left Activist Calendar. Now, a few events. Um, the first kind of event I want to kind of highlight is um, tonight there is actually going to be a special solidarity concert for Timor Leste um, by the with the Painter and Dockers, which I think is a pretty famous band, aren't they? Um, Zane would know. Yeah, they're big in the 80s. Yeah. So the Painters ha- and Dockers was a, um, a militant waterfront union that was later rolled into the MUA, as I understand. But yeah, yeah, they're, they're old school. Mm. Yeah, so they're um, doing a bit of a gig at the MUA um, at 7pm, 46-54 to Island Street in West Melbourne. So if you search Painters and Dockers Solidarity Concept for Timor Leste on Facebook, you should be able to find the details and are able to book tickets. As far as I know, they are still selling tickets. The next um, event that I want to highlight is on Saturday, May the 8th, um, especially in the context, and maybe this might be just a good opportunity to sort of give a bit of an update on the current situation at the Park Hotel. But just recently in the past week, um, a number of refugee, a number of medevac refugees who were um, located in a detention centre oh, um, in Adelaide 
have since been transported to the Park Hotel in Carlton, and I think also six of them have also been transported to the Mitre Detention Centre in Broadmeadows. So, yeah, there's... This is, I think, um, um, raises the, it will be very important, I think, to make this protest that's coming up organized by campaign against racism and fascism as big as possible. And so that's, that rally, keep fighting for refugees and mandatory detention now is happening at, on Saturday, May the 8th, um, at 2 p.m. And the, the next, um, there will also be an online forum at well, actually, apparently this online forum's at 2 a.m., <laughs> but this is in the activist calendar, but it's an online forum with Alan um, Pup, who is a prominent, um, 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 is a Israeli policy, um, activist for Palestine and also written quite a lot of books. He's, um, and his talk is going to be on the role of the GJNF in the Palestinian Nakba. So I think that's being put on by Australian Palestine Activity. Well, no, I think it's put on by an international group, but yeah. That's just um, noted in the activist calendar. And then on Sunday, May the 9th, there is going to be a refugee fundraiser, the Welcome Social, at 2 p.m. at the Howler at 7 to 11 Dawson Street in Brunswick. And as far as I know, that is being organised by Refugee Voices. On Tuesday, May the 11th, um, Green Left is going to be organising a web webinar, Kurdish Solidarity in the um, the Biden era, um, and so having a bit of a discussion on the the current state of the Kurdish Solidarity campaign internationally. And then on Wednesday, the 12th of May, there's going to be a film screening of a classic um, film by Spike Lee, um, Do the Right Thing, that's going to be at the Cinema Nova, 380 Ligon Street in Carlton. On Saturday, May the 15th, um, there's going to be the Green Left 30th Anniversary Shiver Night at 6pm at the M- uh, Maritime Union of Australia Hall, 46 Island Street, West Melbourne. And um, yeah, if you go on the Green Left um, website, you will be able to find details um, in the calendar and also find details on how you can book tickets for the event. And on Sunday, May the 16th, um, there's going to be um, a rally um, uh, for Tamil Genocide Day. And that's going to be happening at um, 2 p.m. at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. Now, this next event, I'll give Zane the opportunity to plug it in. It's on Thursday, May the 20th. Yes, uh, my band, When Our Turn Comes, which is a activist left-wing band, is playing at Cafe Gummo, 711 uh, High Street, Thornbury. You can catch the 86 tram there. And I'm very pleased to announce that we are being supported by Les Thomas. And I haven't shared a stage with Les before, but I'm really looking forward to that because Les is a really staunch voice, as 3CR listeners would know, um, for the Aboriginal struggle and for a range of uh, progressive causes. So, yeah, really looking for that. And it's Climate Strike Eve on the 20th, Thursday the 20th. So if you're taking Friday the 21st off, which you should be, to attend the Climate Strike, Thursday night is basically like Friday night. So you can come down to Gummo, listen to some radical music, have a few beers, sleep in the next day, and then go to the climate strike. 
Yeah, especially since the climate strike is not going to be at, um, at 10 a.m. in the morning, so you should all be fine no, with um, and, sleeping. And it's also not going to be at 7 a.m. in the morning, <laughs> <laughs> like this program. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, um, so that goes flows quite nicely into the climate strike, which is going to be happening on Friday, May the 21st at 1 p.m. at the Shredger Gardens, and it's being organised by School Strike for Climate. And then on Saturday, May the 22nd, there's going to be a rally, Nakba, 73 years of Israeli colonisation must end. And that's going to be happening at 1pm at the State Library, um, 328 Swanson Street in the city. And then there's also going to be another protest um, happening shortly after. Um, Stop independent assessments, no cuts to the NDIS at 2.15pm at the State Library, 328 um, Swanson Street. And then on Sunday, May the 23rd, I just had, um, the, there will be the Pride March at Fitzroy Street, St Kilda. And then the next kind of, the last two kind of events I want to kind of highlight is there's going to be a prior, uh, not Pride March, sorry, there's going to be a book launch, Still Alive, Notes from Australia's Immigration Detention System. And that's going to be happening at 6.30pm Wednesday the 26th at The Collective, 139 Elgin Street in Carlton. And then on Saturday, May the 29th, there's going to be a Union Solidarity Rally, Free the Medivac Refugees, and that's being organised by Unionists for Refugees. So that's going to be happening at 2pm outside uh, the Park Hotel. And yeah, and just another thing to note, if you, um, if you are a listener who is happening, um, happen to be living in Geelong, there is going to be a climate strike at 11am at the Johnstone Park in Geelong. So yeah, any other, do you know if there's any other events I missed, um, Zane? No, I don't think so. I think that's pretty comprehensive for now. So yeah, you should be able to. Um, you can um, and just a reminder for listeners, you can find details for all these events up on um, greenleft.org.au. And yeah, I'll go play. I think I'll play a quick um, quick announcement, and then we'll move on to um, our second and last interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left um, Radio. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. We're your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, Zane just had a quick kind of news update he wanted to give. Um, yeah, this one comes with a trigger warning uh, as well. So the uh, famous former NRL star Jared Hayne has been sentenced to five years and nine months in jail for sexually assaulting a woman on the night of the 2018 grand final. Uh, Hayne must serve a minimum of three years and eight months. Um, I think we're 
going to go to another interview, but I thought it was important to mention this story. Um, It is, I guess, somewhat significant because um, football players have been um, guilty of really um, horrible sexist and misogynistic behaviour for many years, for many decades, and have had a reputation um, for that. Not all football players, obviously, like, uh, but a um, a significant minority, I guess you might say, have been um, guilty of that type of behaviour. This case is significant because this is a very famous, high-profile, uh, wealthy player who will be sent to jail. Um, now, of course, 3CR is home to other programs that... Um, critique the the carceral prison system and um, sending people to jail, but I guess ultimately at its core, this is about holding a high-profile um, perpetrator to account for their actions when historically a lot of those um, cases have have not been held to account, have been kind of swept under the rug. So I think it's significant and it speaks to the uh, epoch of Me Too and of um, women and and feminist men and, and others really raising their voice and demanding a, a higher standard and a higher level of accountability for people who perpetrate these sort of uh, horrible crimes. So... Yeah, a, a significant case and hopefully something that goes some way to shifting the culture in uh, in elite men's sports and goes some way to asserting more respect for women. All right, thanks for that, Zane. Um, I'll just play a quick announcement and then we'll go to our sec- um, second interview. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3CR.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. OK, so on the line we have David Bromfey, um, who is a senior lecturer in modern China history at the University of Sydney, and he has also been a frequent commentator on um, politics in um, China, and he's also been quite a very strong kind of voice against um, anti um, against anti Chinese hysteria and racism that has been pushed by reactionary and right wing governments um, or recently. Um, so yeah, good morning, David. Morning, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I guess um, you've just recently, I guess, written a very good opinion piece in the Age around, I guess. Basically, responding to this um, to this sort of rhetoric that's been coming from our federal government um, about this about war and uh, escalation of military conflict against China, and I guess want to kind of hear what is your kind of comments on some and a summary, I guess, of some of the events that have been happening in the past week that pertain to that. 
Well, there's been a war talk in the background of the discussion of China for for quite a while now, but um, it was really noticeable in the last 10 days or so the way that that shifted from more subtle messaging to very open discussion of the possibility, even the likelihood um, of war with uh, war with China. So I think the standout event was obviously Mike Pizzullo, the head of Home Affairs, uh, on Anzac Day giving an address uh, in which he talked about the drums of war beating, um, you know, and it may be necessary for us to go to war with China. Um, that then, you know, Jim Molan typically uh, piped up, um, said, you know, we've got three to five years um, before we're off to war with China. Um, uh, Peter Dutton was asked about this. He, uh, he refused to rule it out. He said it shouldn't be discounted. Um, and then there was a report last week, um, this week, about a speech um, <clears throat> by a, um, a, a senior general uh, last year talking about the high likelihood of war with China. So clearly, there's been, a, there's been an increase in the public um, messaging around the, the possibility of, of war with China. And I think there's a discussion to be had about the, the motivations here and what, what role this is playing, say, domestically and so on. But I think that this is a time where people who are um, horrified by this possibility really need to speak up and say something. Um, and that we, we hit this on the head because the problem is that should it ever come to this possibility, you know, people in Australia may not actually have very much say in the question of, of going to war or not. We know that historically. So I think it's a good time now to... Um, to start to raise our voices against this. Mm. And what I guess has been, what has I guess been this, what will be guess is the political context, I guess, like the background, what has been the kind of trigger points for for this sort of ramping up of the war rhetoric, um, especially especially in the context, I guess, we've also been, um, especially in this context where we've seen this kind of rise in anti-Asian kind of racism that has been peddled by the likes of Donald Trump in the United States, um, who who has referred to the COVID-19 as the China virus. Mm. Yeah, so there's been a, there's been a steady build-up um, over the last three, four years, beginning really, I think, with Malcolm Turnbull in late 2017 when he initiated quite a, a sharp shift in Australia's China policy. And the, the principle that informed the policies that Turnbull adopted with the, the new foreign interference legislation, the, the new approach to uh, Chinese investment, all of these things, basically that was all grounded in this idea that um, China was this uniquely dangerous country that business as usual with China could not go on. Uh, and that there was some kind of looming threat here. Um, and obviously COVID intensified that um, because COVID, um, I mean, COVID gave an opportunity for a lot of, um, you know, really hysterical China bashing around the, the virus, of course, but it also sped up this, um, the timeline around the competition between China and the United States. I mean, initially people thought that this was going to be you know, a real setback for China. Um, then once it became clear that China was actually doing quite well in containing the virus and its economy wasn't suffering, that in fact America was taking a bigger hit, then you know, people became very worried that this would um, shorten the time frame in which China was going to overtake the US as the, you know, the, the, the world's leading economy. And, and, and this is, um, I think, what brings us to the present moment um, where... Um, I mean, there's, there's various different contexts in which we could talk about this, this, this rhetoric. Obviously, there is the question of domestic politics and its application to some kind of forthcoming uh, election campaign where 
very easy to see the Liberals hedging, I mean, uh, wedging the ALP on, on China. Um, the ALP uh, very cowardly when it comes to questions of uh, foreign policy and particularly defence policy. They'll easily get um, bullied into silence by the Liberals. But there's also the international context. There's obviously, when Australia talks about going to war with China, it's, it's not talking about picking a fight with China by itself. Um, a lot of this relates to the, the state of US-China relations at the moment. Um, and I think we need to understand a lot of Australia's belligerence and its war talk as, uh, in some ways, directed as much towards the US as to China, in the sense saying to the US, you know, look, we're ready, we're willing to, you know, do more to, to help you stand up and, and contain China. Um, and that may reflect the perception that, in fact, the United States is at the moment not doing enough from Australia's point of view. You know, so we need to understand the, the situation <clears throat> in that triangular relationship between uh, China, United States and Australia. Mm. Um, Thane, did you have a quick question you want to ask? Um, yeah, so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about Taiwan, uh, David, sure. because it's it's a complex issue and I was involved in a Facebook discussion and there was a Greens member who was saying Taiwan yeah. is a modern democracy and uh-huh. it's important for Australia to defend them. And to me, that uh-huh. was... Um, symptomatic of perhaps uh, some progressives being mm. lured into this idea that Australia mm. needs to involve itself militarily. If you could just talk a bit about the yeah. political complexities of the, the Taiwan question. Indeed, Should Australia yeah, be involving itself in a yeah, war? Yeah, um, Taiwan is it's a diabolically complex um, situation. And look, personally, I want to state, you know, I believe that the people of Taiwan should have the right to decide their future for themselves. You know, and I would be opposed to any action by China that would violate their ability to do that. Um, but I don't think that that is the kind of cause that can be advanced by force of arms. Um, there are, you know, there are lots of troubling political situations um, in the world. Um, you know, the violation of the right to self-determination in Kashmir right now is an Indian occupation uh, with what Israel is... Um, doing to uh, Palestinians, but I don't advocate war against India or war against Israel uh, as, a, as a response to this situation. Um, so the, the problem with Taiwan is that there's just a lot of ambiguity um, around um, both the way the West understands Taiwan's status. Um, so both China and Taiwan formally have the position that there is one China and that, um, that Taiwan is, is part of um, China. America and Australia's position, however, has simply been to acknowledge that those countries hold that position without actually taking a position on it themselves. So it's a deliberately ambiguous policy. And then the second level of ambiguity is um, that America has never um, committed explicitly to the idea of defending Taiwan against Chinese military action. It's always just left it an open question as to whether or not it would. Um, and there was, a, so there was a sort of a modus vivendi, I suppose, around Taiwan for some time, as long as America was pursuing its, what it called its engagement policy towards mainland China, uh, which was essentially to sort of set aside hostilities, um, you know, profit from the Chinese economy and, and have sort of relatively normal diplomatic relations. Um, what's happened in the last couple of years, of course, is that engagement has been thrown out the window. And now the rhetoric is all about great power competition, strategic rivalries, uh, and so on. Um, 
So in that, in that context, the type of um, military activities that the U.S. has maintained around Taiwan, its freedom of navigation operation, sailing its warships through the, um, the Taiwan Strait, so on, you know, from China's point of view, that, that starts to just um, feel a lot more aggressive um, from the United States. And there's also been steps from the United States to move towards some kind of normalization of its relationship with Taiwan, just gradually in terms of um, diplomatic protocols and so on, starting to, um, you know, roll back some of the, the restrictions that have been put in place in terms of interacting with Taiwan. And, and, you know, again, from China's point of view, that all just looks like another step towards some kind of Taiwanese declaration of independence with U.S. backing. Uh, and that, that is, that's the basic scenario that, that Beijing is desperate to avoid, um, that there's a declaration of independence, that the U.S. supports it, um, and then Taiwan is you know, drawn firmly into this um, American um, um, you know, containment network around, um, around China. So that's where the threats um, from the Chinese side are coming, um, to, to, you know, to prevent uh, that kind of possibility. Um, and, of course, when the West talks about deterrence um, towards China, essentially that is, that's, a, you know, that's a form of military threat. Uh, as well, to say, you know, well, if you take action, we will go to war uh, against you. But there's, uh, like I said, there's huge ambiguity uh, as to whether or not the United States would actually um, take any action there. So I think that sort of lays out the, you know, the horrible complexity of the situation. But just to reiterate, you know, I think that we can support the right of people in Taiwan to, you know, decide for themselves their future. We need to be promoting that principle um, you know, consistently and 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 loudly um, throughout the region, um, but that's very different from saying that we should go to war against China to you know to facilitate that. Hmm. And I guess going in, um, ending on that sort of note with war, I guess what could, to kind of conclude, I guess this interview in terms of like what I guess needs to kind of happen in terms of like the Australian kind of public in terms of what we need, what needs to happen in terms of raising our voices against the potential war, a potential war yeah. against China. And mm. especially since if there is going to be, if there is a war, it's lo- very likely that just like the Iraqi war and all the wars that um, governments around the world are participating in, um, the opinions, the perspectives of the public will likely not be taken into account. Mm. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that's, that's really a key point, which is why I think it's, it's, it's really worth us thinking now about what sort of, what sort of campaigning we need um, in, a, in a situation like this? Should it should the situation continue to deteriorate? And of course, unfortunately, we don't have a very strong anti-war movement uh, in Australia at the moment. So, I mean, <clears throat> certainly, I think if anyone's listening and they agreed with what I've written in the paper uh, yesterday, I, you know, I would encourage you to you know just to take that and send it to your local member and tell them you agree with this. That you know, um, any kind of war with China would be. Um, would be madness. Um, I think we do need to put more pressure on the politicians to say where they stand on this question, um, because it is the case that you know most Australians don't support any kind of idea of following the US into war with China. But I think there's just not enough politicians who are willing to say that themselves. I think when you put them on the spot, a lot of ALP uh, politicians, their response will be to say, well... Um, you know, it depends on the circumstances. You know, maybe um, we don't want to say that we will never do that because, you know, they think that this is necessary to, to sort of, um, 
some sort of um, you know um, strategy to to ward off um, China. Um, so <clears throat> I'd like to see us start to have you know public meetings um, around this question. Um, I think that people need to be brought up to speed on issues like Taiwan, issues like the South China Sea. Um, there's there's just so much complexity around the China question that I feel that sometimes people are a little bit reluctant to wade into it. Um, you know, and um, it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it, history shows that, you know, there's no time to lose when it comes to um, building uh, opposition to, to this kind of thing. And I, and I think that that, you know, just to reiterate something I was saying before, you know, this can be done on a, on a progressive basis. You know, we shouldn't, shouldn't be bullied into um, the idea that, you know, if you're against war with China, then you're some kind of apologist for China, that you're just interested in, you know, uh, making a buck out of trade with China, that this just represents some kind of corporate um, um, strategy to get on with business with China. No, that's, that's not where we're coming from on this issue, you know. We are, you know, we stand for um, justice for the Uyghurs, you know, we oppose, um, you know, the, the sort of horrific um, human rights abuses taking place in Xinjiang. You know, we want the people of Taiwan to be able to decide their future for themselves. Um, but, you know, we see this, you know, we see that those kind of causes as going hand in hand with the cause of peace um, and the anti-war movement uh, across Asia, which we really need to be we need to be thinking about this in regional terms as well, you know, linking up with civil society groups um, throughout the region who share this perspective um, and creating unity on that basis, not on the basis of nation versus nation, um, Australia versus China, US versus China, um, but on the basis of, you know, people who share these um, progressive principles. Yeah. Well, thank. I think that's a, a very good note to kind of end on, David. And, um, yeah, thank you so much um, for having this kind of important um, discussion with us um, for Green Great. Left Radio. And, um, yeah, we'll pop, we potentially might have, we'll definitely be having, for our listeners, we'll definitely be having more discussions on this topic, especially potentially exploring more the different kind of complexities and aspects of Chinese politics and this um, and this whole and this whole kind of issue. Um, so yeah, thanks again, David. Cheers, thanks David. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yep. Bye. Okay, so you will just interviewing um, David um, Bromfey, um, senior lecturer at the University of Sydney in modern Chinese history, about this about the whole kind of political context um, and this whole escalating situation around rhetoric coming from our government about a potential kind of war with China. And of course, I think you know. If there was ever a situation where um, where that could happen, we would have to be would have to be on the streets as soon as possible. We would have to build as massive rallies as we could possibly can, and also build as much opposition to such war. Because I think you know the impacts of what a war could be cannot be overstated on a human level. Like we just have to, especially in terms of the fears of ramping up of anti-Chinese racism, and of course. The whole situation and the whole thing about we have to oppose war at any costs and yeah. So um, we are getting, I think, to the end of the program. I would like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week and um, stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions, I think, potentially might be getting back on the air. No, still we're still going with repeats of Earth Matters. <laughs> um, and yeah. I'd like to thank all our listeners again. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. See you next Friday.
This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter.